Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Library Science Channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm joined by Emma Hagstrom-Mullen, author of Spoils of Knowledge, 17th Century Plunder in Swedish Archives and Libraries, published by Brill in January 2023. Spoils of Knowledge offers new perspectives on document and book plundering grounded in the controversial heritage connected to the Swedish empire that remains a part of Swedish archives and libraries. Previous studies suggest that continental spoils were perceived as an inferior and problematic category, and that Catholic books in particular were hard to accommodate in Protestant libraries. However, by considering systems of classification and collection orders of archives and libraries, this book unearths a much more complex history of how plundering knowledge was appreciated, used, and fused with its new Swedish settings. Emma Hagström-Mullen is a researcher in history of science and ideas at Uppsala University in Sweden. Emma, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Um, before we get started, could you share a little bit with listeners about your background, where you grew up and went to school, and what brought you to your research on libraries and archives? Yes, I would love to. Uh, I grew up in a small industrial town in Sweden, uh, so nothing special. Uh, it's called Katrineholm, and uh, I guess there are there's not much culture around in this town, <laughs> no museums, no archives, but I really love the library. There was a library and I spent a lot of time there as a child. And I think like most children that are exposed to books, you really sort of like <laughs> enjoy them. And uh, I mean, it was not self-evident for me to go to university with my background, but I did. And I did a little bit later. I started at 22. And for some reason, I chose history as my major. Um, and uh, I also did a BA in book history, which is a very, very small subject in Sweden. It's, uh, I mean, very few students. Uh, and I think it was when I, I wrote my first bachelor uh, thesis in history, I, uh, it was about a Swedish queen. Uh, and I looked at uh, some letters that, uh, she didn't write them, but she dictated them, and they were going to her sister. And I remember when I held this 17th century letter in my hands and were like, wow, <laughs> this is really like, you know, I sort of got this feeling, this is history in my hands. And it sounds a bit uh, corny, I guess, and a bit, you know, fetishizing sources and so on. But, but I mean, then I sort of heard about this subject, book history, and that you actually could take it at the university. And, and it offered you the opportunity to, to look at old manuscripts, medieval manuscripts and so on, and, and study them as objects. Like it was not about reading, but about the materiality. And I felt like, oh, I really need to, to, to take a course. And then I sort of continued. Uh, so that was sort of the... Uh, the beginning of it. I guess I was just very drawn to the materiality of archival documents and books. Uh, and also, like, since it affected me so much, it also gave me like a uh, like a sense of how we as researchers are affected by the environments that we conduct research in, the archive, the library, and so on. So that's sort of like self-reflexive uh, take on, I mean, it's always present in the work that I do, I guess. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
That's a that's an amazing start. I mean, I, I don't remember having the opportunity to take book history in my undergraduate years, and and that must have been so exciting. Um, it was. It was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so turning to this book, Spoils of Knowledge. I'd love if you could speak a little more about how you came to this project and what your main goals were in writing it. Mm. Yes. So, I mean, the book is a revision of my PhD uh, that I finished in 2015. Uh, I, I did it, I defended it in within the history of ideas. Uh, it's a discipline that's a bit specific to Sweden, I guess. It reminds a little bit about intellectual history in combination with history of science, I guess. Um, and um I did, I mean, I started as a PhD student in 2010, uh, and I did this within an interdisciplinary research school in cultural history. And the topic, plundering Swedish collections, sort of came to my mind when I was writing the application. I sort of thought of it as if this could be a fruitful object of study. And I mean, once again, as I said, I took... um, book history as a student. And when I took, uh, I think it was the bachelor course, we read uh, an old um, book or thesis written by a librarian at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, his name is Otto Valde, very Swedish. Uh, so Valde is the surname. And Otto Valde, he was a librarian and he was an expert uh, in spoils of war in Swedish archives and libraries. So the first, he wrote two books about this. The first one was published in 1916, so during the First World War. And I mean, I just remember that I was a bit like shocked. I had no idea <laughs> that Swedish libraries were full with, with books that had been uh, abducted from continental collections. And of course, uh, it was very interesting to learn how public institution in Sweden had been established through this material. Uh, and uh, when I... I sort of turned it into to, uh, an application for a, a PhD position. And when I started out, I had very little knowledge about the subject. So it, it was completely new to me besides reading uh, Valda's study, of course. Uh, but I was lucky because the Swedish uh, Royal Armory, it's a museum called in Swedish Livrustkammaren. <laughs> uh, and they they did an exhibition about spoils of war in Swedish collections. So this was uh, like one year before I started in 2009. So that was very lucky to me because this was an excellent exhibition. I think it was very brave of them uh, and it was an important initiative. Uh, and they sort of choose to place this common in Sweden, but also difficult heritage uh, in the public spotlight. Um, And most importantly, uh, the museum curators, they did several publications. I think there there were three of them, and one is in English, that sort of connected the early modern uh, uh, warfare, uh, the Swedish plundering, with also collecting cultures of the early modern period, and also with the dynastic ambitions of the Swedish elite. So they really put like more uh, was more contemporary perspectives on this material. If I compare it to this Otto Valde uh, book that I <laughs> that I mentioned earlier from the early 20th century, which is very national romantic, uh, of course, because this is the grand era of Sweden when we have an empire in the 17th century. Um, so, uh, I mean, that was what I started with. I had read Valde's book. I had had this... Um, we ha- I had the publication from this very interesting, very 
important exhibition that uh, the Swedish Royal Armory uh, made. But with that said, I felt that there was still some uh, something that was not right uh, in, especially uh, when it comes to to the to the usefulness of the loot in Sweden. I mean, how could these books be used when they finally uh, arrived in, for instance, Uppsala University Library in the 1620s, 1630s? And uh, it was especially the, the so-called Catholic books because uh, a lot of the books that were confiscated or, or plundered, the libraries that were plundered by the Swedish regents belonged to the Jesuit order, so a Catholic uh, order. And, and this material has often been depicted as useless, useless in a Protestant uh, setting, in the, in the setting of Protestant Sweden. And that goes from Balde up to date, I would say, and that we can't really understand what did they use the books for, right? And this was sort of a, a juxtaposition that fascinated me. So, uh, the Swedish king, Gustavus Adolphus, that really started this in the 1620s, uh, this sort of grand scale plundering on the continent. He was a devout Protestant. And of course, if you take all the books from the Jes Jesuits, I mean, he destroyed their possibility to, to uh, educate people and to, to do missionary work, of course. So, I mean, that makes sense. You want to deprive the Jesuits from something. But still, you know, uh, why didn't he just destroy the books on site, like burn them? Or uh, or he could also, like later in Sweden, done a selection. He could kept the book that was important and burn the book that were not important, that were too Catholic, so to speak. Uh, so so I, I, there's a lot of like sophisticated logistics going on in this project. I mean, all these books were gently packed in chests. They were sent off to Sweden and then they were inventoried uh, and then they were reused within the Swedish educational system. So there must be something more to it. That was my thought, <laughs> so to speak. So uh, when I approached the subject, I started with consulting lists depicting plunder. Uh, I looked at inventories, I looked at catalogues uh, from Swedish, uh, the, the Swedish National Archives, Uppsala University Library, for instance. And little by little, I started to see Swedish spoils of war in a different light. And to me, the key to that was looking at uh, classification and spatial organization and how that sort of changes over time. And an important uh, insight that I had, I think like, about one or two years into the project was that the, like the word spoils of war actually doesn't exist in the Swedish language during this period. <laughs> so it comes into the Swedish language in the beginning of the 18th century after roughly a hundred year period of intense plundering. <laughs> so the practice confers the word for it later. So when the Swedish elite, the kings, the commanders, when they write about these objects, they write about them as books that came from a certain place, books that were taken from a certain place. Uh, and sometimes they even describe what they are doing as collecting and preserving. <laughs> and I mean, to us, uh, Today, it sounds very weird because this is plundering and it's looting. <laughs> but I also think it's in, important to sort of try to understand how the actors thought about this in the 17th century. And to them, this was 
a kind of collection practice um, one could one could argue yeah yeah that's um, really really helpful context I think for some of the other things that we'll talk about and um, I I was wondering um, if we could talk a little more about these practices of looting in the 17th century that you really describe in the introduction to the book and the changing historic meaning of of these practices or I mean as you said the, the creation of words for these practices um so could you speak a little bit more about how plundering has changed over time and also the distinction that you make about cultural plundering which I found really interesting yes um so I mean I guess we could start in antiquity, right? Because I mean, as long as we have had war, we have also had plundering. And for instance, uh, Cicero has written about the victor's right uh, to plunder. I mean, uh, something like when the battle is won, all places ceases to be sacred. So he sort of opens up for even religious institutions to be victims of plundering. Uh, so, I mean, if I were to generalize a little bit, you can say antiquity, the Middle Ages, plundering is much of a, an uncontrolled practice. But if we move forward to the early modern era, all of a sudden laws appear uh, that aim to control the plundering. And this is something new. And why do uh, the princes, uh, the aristocrats in Europe uh, in the early modern era try to uh, control these practices? Well, first of all, first of all, it's uh, important to to sort of, uh, as you said, uh, I distinct uh, distinct cultural plundering from other types of plundering because plundering, of course, occurs for many different reasons. You need to support the troops during the campaigns, uh, so that's one uh, reason for to plunder and you also it was also like a way for the soldiers that were mercenaries in general during this period to earn their living so they also had the right to plunder uh, but when it comes to this cultural plundering that I'm trying to sort of unpack um, and with that I mean uh, the practice of taking entire archives, libraries, or art chambers, or even certain aristocrats, they could handpick certain valuable objects that they knew from start were in a certain collection. So sometimes it could be like very precise, these practices. Uh, this must be, this kind of practice, I think, need to be connected to this European collecting culture that we see in the early modern era. Uh, and according to this culture, regents and aristocrats, they established grand collections in order to manifest their power, knowledge, but also the dynastic ambitions, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, of course, they didn't want to share these riches <laughs> with the soldiers or with, with commoners. So it was very important for them to sort of try to, to have control over the, the plundering situation. And of course, they didn't always succeed with that. However, they had, they had these articles of war uh, that, for instance, Gustavus Adolphus, uh, before he, he goes to war in 1621, he established uh, these rules that all the soldiers uh, have to swear an oath on to follow. Uh, and the rules say that uh, you can, they can't, the soldiers can't 
uh, plunder before the king says so. Now it's okay. <laughs> and usually with, with the archives and the libraries, there are quite distinct instructions, uh, letters that are written to, to certain educated individuals that are parts of the campaigns that they need to, to secure the library or they need to secure the archive before uh, chaos sort of <laughs> takes over and, 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 and the plunderers is just going wild, right? So I mean, it's 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 clear that uh, the people in power, the aristocrats, the regents, kings, queens, they really try to to collect, or to maybe not to collect, but to enrich their own collections in this way. Uh, and uh, there were also philosophers uh, like Hugo Grotius, for instance, that wrote about this in the 1620s. That he picked up on this antique tradition from Cicero and said that, well, in a just war, the victor has the right to take plunder. So there were philosophers, there were laws that sort of um, uh, le legalized this practice. Uh, so, it, I mean, the early modern uh, looting, plundering within Europe is something quite different from what we see uh, later in history during the colonial era, for instance. Uh, so this is something different. And, and I'm guessing that uh, there could be other uh, uh, museums in Europe that could do similar exhibitions like the one that was made in Stockholm in 2009 in Livreskammaren because this, I mean, these objects exist in most collection, I would guess, because the uh, the princes really, if they had a chance, they really uh, took the opportunity to plunder their enemy. So, so this is a, a very common practice in this period. And uh, it's not national projects that is also important to remember so this is before the nation states so the people that really gains are individuals like the kings and the aristocrats the commanders the high-ranked officers they are the ones that had the authority to seize an entire collection that's that's a really fascinating distinction as well to remind ourselves that these weren't national projects at that point in time. I think there are a lot of assumptions that we bring to spoils of war and things like that. And so it's helpful to have that that framework. Um, and so your book then looks at three different case studies. Um, and the first one concerns the Mitao files, a collection of parchment and papers that live today in Sweden's national archives. How does studying these documents and the way that they've been classified over time help us understand the impact of plundered documents in Sweden's history and more directly their impact on Sweden's national archives? It's a very good question, I must say. I think like in order to for me to answer that, I think I need to say something about archival organization in general first. <laughs> so, I mean, today, most Western archives are arranged according to the provenance principle, right? Which means that when you bring different collections together, I mean, collections of different origin, uh, and this is usually the case in a national archive, uh, for instance, or in a national archives, I mean, it sort of implies that you have several archives within the archive, right? Uh, and according to the provenance principle, you don't mix, uh, but you respect the origin of each collection. But this is a practice that appeared first, first in the 19th century, uh, when many nation states were centralizing archival collections. 
the Swedish military state of the 17th century, however, they were already doing this sort of like centralizing work in, in the 17th century, in the early 17th century. And, and uh, this is then, of course, before the provenance principle existed. So archives then were often arranged according to uh, the type of documents uh, that, that were involved or by subject. And in the early 17th century, this, the Swedish National Archives had a very particular uh, organization. Um, the files should be arranged off the rule of each king. So it was this sort of like genealogical um, uh, organization of the archives. So each king, or later we have a queen also, uh, had its own department or its own cabinet with files, right? And the Mittau files, they came to the National Archives in Stockholm in 1622. They had been taken from a castle, a Mittau castle in 1621 by the Swedish King Gustavus Adolphus. And it was a collection, a collection of parchments and papers that once had belonged to the Livonian Knights. So this was a Knights order. They ruled Livonia and Livonia is then today's Estonia, Latvia in the Middle Ages, right? So this is a historical collection. I think this is important to remember. And when these spoils uh, that the king confiscated in Mita, when they arrived in the Swedish National Archives, they were uh, remarkably, well, first they were inventoried, of course, but then they were actually integrated with uh, the records of the Swedish kings. So this wouldn't happen today, right? Because today we have the provenance principle, but they were actually, or at least part of these files were integrated with the records of the Swedish kings. And it's, very clear that in the beginning, uh, the first archivist that worked with these files, he perceives them as extremely valuable because here you have uh, lots of historical sources to Northeastern European uh, history. You have correspondence, for instance, between the, the order master, masters in Livonia and the Pope. So uh, if you're interested in history and you're a Swedish official in the 1620s, you have gold in this collection, right? Uh, but it was not that easy to handle this sort of alien material in the context of the Swedish National Archives. So, I mean, of course, they demanded space. So that is always like a problem that uh, uh, when, you, when you try to write ar uh, archival history, it's something that comes up over and over again. It's always too cramped. And then, also, of course, also the archivists needed to, to read through all these files. They needed to classify them. And sometimes it seems like the origin of these files and the content, their content did not really fit into this narrative uh, that the archival officials were trying to create that I mentioned earlier that endorsed the Vasa kings. And this meant that after a few years, these records were uh, sort of scattered throughout Trikiruna Castle uh, that housed the, the archives at this uh, time. So some deeds that could be directly related to the Vasa kings, they sort of disappeared among other documents uh, in each king's collection. So they sort of lost their provenance. Uh, they lost the geographical origin and identity and transformed actually into Swedish. 
And then there were also certain old and therefore particularly valuable parchments that had been taken uh, in metal. They were still kept together and they actually stored them in a portable casket. So they were very easy to, to uh, access and also to move around in the archive rooms because there were several of them. Uh, and finally, also, there were a lot of meta documents, po possibly paper files that were perceived as less important with time. And they were also probably more difficult to classify, more difficult to read. So they were stored in chests and boxes in a completely other part of the castle, uh, so far away from the archive rooms uh, that were too cramped. cramped. So this to cut a long story short, <laughs> the point here is that national archives, they are made up by a variety of collections, as I said uh, initially, not just file uh, created by uh, the government itself. And sometimes this material can have been included due to confiscations, for instance, or plundering. Uh, however, since classification changes over time, this suspicious material or, or uh, alien material or, or whatever we want to call it, it may be very difficult to trace, right? So our understanding of documents are informed, since our understanding, I mean, as historians, as archivists, as people working, engaging with collections, uh, it's, it's of course informed by the classification and the epistemic structure of archives today we need to look into how classification has changed uh, with time in order to sort of reveal these unexpected histories and materials. And then we can sort of see that, that things has actually lost <laughs> the provenance, for instance, and, and, and become an apart, a part of Swedish material, so to speak, or, or, or maybe going in the other direction, become more, more alienated in the archival context. So if we don't look into classification, we can't really find these stories. I think that's uh, the most important part. And also that collections usually have a more complicated and, and, uh, and hidden histories behind this sort of like epistemic structure uh, that we first see when we approach uh, the archive or the library, for instance. And, and it, you need to be a little bit of a de detective in order to sort of detect <laughs> these stories, I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'm thinking about how as archivists, we often think that it's our job to make it really clear like how the collections are organized but at the same time maybe we need to help people find these complications that are hidden in our very clear finding aids and, and organization structures. Yeah and I think it's important to remember that uh, that we need to preserve uh, different traces of classification so we don't so so we don't erase it because it can be an object of study for researchers in the future and I think that is especially important when we consider materials from the colonial imperial era uh, and, and and classification that we today perceive as racist and and I I, I uh, I very much sympathize that you want to change that classification uh, today, but it's also important, I think, to preserve old uh, classifications so we sort of can unlock, you know, certain context when we study the historical material uh, in the future, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a, a really important thing to keep in that conversation. That's a great point. Um, so then moving to your second case study, you describe 
book books and collections which became part of the Uppsala University Library. And here you explain that studying the spatial organization, classification, and reclassification helps us understand more about the history of knowledge and libraries. So could you share a little bit about what these materials were and where they came from, and then what they help us understand about changing ideas about knowledge and knowledge management? Yes, I mean, I mentioned uh, Jesuit book collections already, right? So uh, many of the book collections that were taken from Gustavus Adolphus, for instance, but also the regions that came after him, they were taken from Catholic settings, for instance, from Jesuit uh, colleges uh, in Europe. And the question then uh, is, of course, how can you create a Lutheran university library with these Catholic spoils, right? And and according to, to previous scholarship, this was not a very successful enterprise. Uh, but if you look at it in terms of classification, in terms of spatial organization of collections, I would say that it was fairly easy <laughs> in the end for the Swedish librarians to sort of accomplish something that, that actually was very useful to, to the professors of Uppsala University Library, but also to the students, of course, that had access to this material. So uh, it's, I mean, Uppsala University Library is, uh, sorry, I mean, Uppsala University is an old medieval uh, uh, university, uh, but it didn't have a library until the 1620s. So it was actually a part of Gustavus Adolphus' cultural politics to sort of establish a library. And, and many uh, books that at least around, I would say 50% of the books in the beginning had been taken from Catholic scholarly environments. So uh, I, I mean, I, rem uh, I, I mentioned the, the Jesuit uh, colleges that were that were plundered by Swedish troops, but we also had, of course, uh, monasteries and 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 um, and other religious institutions in Sweden before we became uh, Protestant, right? So so those books were also confiscated, and some of them ended up in Uppsala University Library. So it, basically, the same kind of books. And it's also important to remember, I think, that the book market was not as divided during the 17th century as one might think today. I mean, educated aristocrats, they read a variety of authors. It was, I mean, a lot of Swedish aristocrats went to Paris, for instance, in order to get education. Uh, and, and, I mean, even when it came to, to confessional books or books that dealt with theolo uh, theological issues, I mean, if you were educated nobleman, you should really uh, have knowledge that is quite broad. You should know the other side, so to speak. Um, so this is important also to have in mind. Uh, but if we look at how the library in Uppsala was organized, uh, they used a house that had two floors. And the librarians there, they actually created two libraries. Uh, and one, uh, that was on the, the first floor uh, that they called the upper library. Uh, that was the library that sort of functioned as a, universe, a universal university library. Uh, here you had uh, books that matched all the subjects that were taught at the university at the time. Uh, so it was really a, a collection that sort of followed the faculties at the university uh, in uh, the 17th century. But they also, uh, in the second floor, they, they created another library uh, where they put most of the older books uh, and most of the 
medieval manuscripts, not all of them, but most of them. And uh, here they put most of the books that also were uh, classified as Catholic, as Jesuit, and so on, Polish books, uh, books in German, and so on, scholastics, those things that might not be very interesting to uh, uh, a professor at a uh, um, a Lutheran uh, university, right? <laughs> so uh, it's it's quite when you look at material, it's it's quite striking that this um, this floor sort of had a, a historical meaning uh, to to uh, uh, the the curators and and to the professor. It worked as a historical collection, a little bit like a museum over this religious past that they had now put behind them that was Catholic. But still, uh, this could be important sources to Swedish history. So this was also an argument for keeping these books and for trying to preserve them as well as they, uh, as they could. So in the end, like all the books were actually preserved. Uh, no books were burned or, or <laughs> taken out of the collections, or there were never uh, and uh, there were no discussion about these books being dangerous uh, or books that were uh, kept away from the students, for instance. These kinds of discussions doesn't exist in the 17th century. Uh, I think it becomes uh, different later on uh, in the 18th century. But in the 17th century, they had a library that was the universal library, and then they had a historical collection, and they both had uh, um, a function uh, in this university setting. Uh, and I found your descriptions of that house so interesting because you really had good architectural drawings of this space that had two floors that were not connected internally and and when that became the place for these libraries that that environment or architectural environment uh, created the possibility for these two separate libraries that made me think a lot about how the architectural spaces that we use for libraries then shape the way we organize knowledge within them Yes, and I mean also the first uh, catalogues that are uh, made up over the two libraries in, in the 1640s uh, also have they are grounded in that space. So that makes it it makes it very easy to sort of follow uh, how the books were arranged within within this space or the, the two floors, right? Uh, but then it becomes trickier uh, with the catalogues that follow because they are not. Uh, anchored in a space and I think so I mean I was very lucky with the material because I had both the drawing and then I had these two catalogues that were made in around 1640 uh, that are really like like striking gold when you have right. it right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> an amazing opportunity for research wow yeah yeah but I mean that space matters <laughs> obviously yeah in order to understand uh, uh, the collections and and um, I mean there have been I think a few mentionings of these distinction between an upper and a lower library by scholars before, but the, this lower library with all the books have always been perceived as not very important or like uh, like the less the books that are not used or like not so valuable. But I can't really see that in the material that I have consulted. Uh, it was just something different. So yeah. Huh. yeah. That's really fascinating. Um, so moving to your last case study, 
here you looked at the spoils collected by Carl Gustav Rangel at Skokloster Castle. Castle. Um, and Rangel had this very careful curatorial practice. So could you tell listeners more about how he curated his collections and what this demonstrates for us about the intellectual work that he was doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, first of all, I, I, I think I need to say that he had a lot of people working for him, helping him with creating these collections. I mean, uh, he had agents all over Europe, uh, especially when it came to books, uh, that sort of provided him with the latest within different fields that interested him. And of course, he also had a wife, Anna, Marge Anna Margareta von Haugwitz, <laughs> uh, and she was also very much involved in this project of managing their collections. And uh, when Skokloster Castle was uh, built uh, from uh, the 1650s and onward, uh, Daniel decided to move his uh, collections from different estates that he had, uh, not only in, in what is Sweden today, but also Northern Germany, in order to sort of create this safe space so uh, no one would come and plunder. <laughs> or he felt that they were more safe in Sweden than, than they were uh, in, in his German estates, right? And um, this place that he created, the Skokloster, uh, I mean, even though a lot of people were involved in, in creating this, uh, this place, this sort of museum, uh, it was really the narrative that these collections created, that he brought together, it was really, it didn't really reflect his biography and his sort of achievements in life uh, so this is very much a, a, a castle and collections to speak about war <laughs> because that was sort of how he made his reputation he was a, a, a successful but also a respected warlord uh, there are even uh, sources because uh, he conducted war in, in Denmark for instance and there are some Danish sources that actually describe him as a, a fair warlord. So he didn't have a bad reputation um, uh, in that sense. Uh, and he was also quite moderate when he plundered. Uh, I will get back to that in a minute. But uh, the most important collection that he created within this giant uh, Skokloster castle uh, was his armory and his library. But definitely the armory. He was very fond of weapons. And when it came to weapons, he, he liked to have the latest within weapon technology. And the library sort of corresponds to that because it was the same there that he really wanted to have new books, new information. He, lo he loved handbooks. Uh, he loved uh, books that... Um, uh, gave him advices on how to take care of his weapons, for instance, uh, or how to do drawings. Uh, he also he was also found of making architectural models. Uh, so he had that kinds of books and books on perspective. Uh, he was a practical man. So even though he 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 was the chancellor of the university in Greifswald, that is now in Germany, northern Germany. Uh, and I mean, he 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 was uh, a little bit involved in certain theological debates, but still he wasn't really that sort of like educated bookish man. But still he had these interests, and especially if it was 
something that was practical, fencing, horseback riding, uh, all these uh, uh, noble virtues that a, that a man of his um, of his rank, so to speak, were supposed to master. That was things that he collected. And what is interesting uh, with his spoils, because he was very particular when he took spoils, and he was also moderate, because that was considered to be a virtue. So he didn't take too much. And this is the complete opposite if you compare it with Gustavus Adolphus, that was a king. And if he could, he confiscated entire collections. I mean, he even wrote, confiscate that, or ruin that, or, uh, and so on. It's like, and he really reused this um, uh, materials in Sweden to sort of establish different collections, right? That was used in the educational system. So that was sort of a part of a cultural politics. And Sweden was a very poor country also, we need to remember. But Wrangel in the 1640s, 50s, uh, he had a lot of money and he put a lot of money into his collecting, into buying books, buying art, buying uh, all the different kinds of beautiful objects that you can imagine. Uh, but still, I mean, as, as a warlord, he was supposed to take a little bit of spoils and he did that. And then he often handpicked them. And the interesting thing is that he often handpicked objects that when it came to books, for instance, they could be just a few years old. Uh, so, for instance, I have consulted a list uh, where he, from a library catalog, uh, has picked, I think it's around 90 books that he wants to have from this collection. The rest he let go of, but he wants these 90 books, right? And so it's quite fascinating to follow. And it's a completely different practice, as I said, if I compare it to, to, the, uh, to what Gustavus Adolphus, for instance, did, right? So there are... A few exceptions, though, uh, from, from this, him wanting to have the latest within and everything, within information, within uh, uh, weapon technology and so on. And that is that he actually sometimes took objects as um, spoils of war that had like, like connection to certain uh, noble or um, uh, royal families, for instance, that sort of brought history to his collection, that had these gene genealogical uh, connections. Uh, so, for instance, he takes more prayer books uh, that, you, I mean, often had female owners. And in the beginning of these prayer books, they sometimes write who gave the book to them. This was given to me by my father and so on, and a little bit about their family history. So these objects are very personal and they are linked to certain individuals, they're linked to certain family histories. And this is something that interested, interested Prangel and he took as spoils. Uh, and it's striking because he never bought these kind of books. He never bought old books, only new ones. So, so here is like... <laughs> Here you can sort of see that certain things in his collections sort of became trophies. So probably more of a trophy than a book that were read uh, in, this, in this occasion. But otherwise, I mean, this, uh, this giant uh, cabinet of curiosities that you could sort of call a Skokloster Castle um, is very, very uh, uh, carefully curated and also when it came to the spoils. And there are not that many of them in the collections, but because 
the collection sort of had created this very uh, uh, narrative of a, of a great warlord. Uh, war is everywhere in this collection. People have visited Skokloster later in the 18th century and in the 19th century and so on. And they have thought that, oh, it's filled with spoils of war. <laughs> But that's not the case, actually, because this was a this was a man that had uh, he was extremely rich, and he really wanted to uh, present himself as a man of the world, uh, as a man that had a lot of knowledge, and therefore he also consumed a lot of books and a lot of fine art objects to sort of like display this uh, to the world. Yeah, that's such an interesting example then of how collections get used um to you know not just for learning but like to build reputation and persona yes uh and and also in the uh, i mean since it became a museum early on uh and i mean in the 17th century this was a, a castle that was very much uh, a museum over its creator Carl Gustav Rangel but later when we have national romanticism coming in the 19th century this becomes a symbol for this long gone Swedish empire uh, that we had in the 17th century so it it becomes appreciated because it speaks about the Swedish, uh, the Swedish wars in the 17th century and the Swedish successes in those wars. So it's also interesting to see that space, uh, that creation as something that sort of the meanings shifts with time. Uh, uh, definitely. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so we've been talking about three case studies that are located in Sweden, but I think and and we've hinted at this, that a lot of your conclusions can be applied more broadly to archival and library collections organized by colonizing nations. What are some of the conclusions that you've reached about how spoils impact collections today? And how should how should we look for those impacts in other collecting institutions? Mm, that's a very good question. Uh, and I think I mean, uh, I'm, I have been talking a lot about classification, <laughs> so I think that would be like my main main point that it's important to study uh, classification uh, because, I mean, uh, of course, spoils of war in or colonial, uh, I mean, objects uh, collected in uh, during the colonial imperial eras are often hidden behind these schemes, right, of classification. And, and I think this is especially true for libraries. Uh, I mean, in Sweden, we quite recently have started to notice provenance in our digital uh, uh, catalogs, for instance. So if I'm interested in a certain provenance, uh, something that I a provenance from the 30 years war for instance to see what is in in Swedish libraries I can't really uh just do uh a search on that because that information hasn't really been added yet I mean they are working on it but but uh it's 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 something that is sort of happening now and I mean there are many reasons for this I mean Yes, of course, it's been, this is a difficult heritage. So uh, curators, archivists, librarians have been a little bit ashamed of it. But at the same time, I mean, there is also a lot of ignorance uh, going on because I can see that just 
during a, a time span of 100 years from, from the 1620s to the beginning of the 18th century in the Swedish National Archives, for instance, they lose the knowledge because the people that were around when the Mittal files, for instance, came to the archive, they're not around anymore. Uh, they have died and so on, and new archivists come in and they rearranged uh, the archives, and, and then it becomes more and more difficult to trace uh, certain, certain files and documents. So I, I think that uh, there, there are hidden histories always to sort of unravel behind these uh, schemes of classification. So that is like one thing that I think is sort of like a general point that is important. And also that objects are, I mean, they're so uh, depending on the contexts, uh, I mean, time and space that they sort of exist in, right? So it's a it's 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 important to rem remember that regardless if it's a, an archival document if it's a, a book or if it's an art object texts are many different things they have many sort of layers of temporality uh, attached to them and um uh, i mean yeah i'm not sure how to wrap that one up <laughs> well those yeah, I mean, it is a difficult question. I'm sorry. Those are really <laughs> useful takeaways and also um, gratifying for me to hear as someone who spends time cataloging to think about, you know, the value of yeah. of adding information into the record about um, about a book uh, and how that I mean, helps people. Yeah. And I mean, provenance is not an easy issue either because they change with time as well. <laughs> So I mean, uh, I mean because because uh, I mean the map of Europe <laughs> has changed a lot <laughs> since the Second World War, for instance. So I mean, and and when we had these uh, changes, uh, when new states appears, for instances, I mean new things and new interest in certain provenances uh, arises. So and I think also, like I said before, it's very uh, important to also to sort of uh, separate this. Plundering that goes on within Europe during the early modern period, with what happens later uh, in colonial context, for instance. Uh, I mean, it's like the the power structure is completely uh, different, I would say. Uh, but I think that it would be important. Uh, I mean, this kind of research that attend to provenance, that attend to, uh, I mean the coming into being of collections in history. Uh, it's something that we could, uh, I think, explore a little bit more uh, because it's often more complicated uh, than we think. And it's important because, I mean, we have a certain perception of heritage uh, today, right? But I mean, the, the idea of heritage is not that old <laughs> in one way. Uh, so especially if I say national heritage, that's a pretty new way of perceiving historical matter. So I think that we sort of need these like different layers of time in order to sort of complicate what we actually have in our archives, uh, museum and libraries. Yeah, it's exciting to think about all of the potential research that can be done um, about about collections and how they've come together. Um, but I've taken a lot of your time. So before we wrap up, I would love if you could share a little bit about what you're working on next. No pressure. Um, but I don't know if you have any new projects that have grown out of this book or anything completely new that you're working on. Well, I actually, I, I'm working on a project now that deals with provenance. 
<laughs> so uh, I mean, I I think when I when I did the book, there was so much in order to sort of get down to the 17th century context, I had to sort of remove the 19th century <laughs> from the material and, and sort of remove this sort of national romantic gaze on the 17th century. And that was quite difficult. And I got very annoyed with the 19th century. So I decided I need to do a project about the 19th century. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, I, I noticed when I worked on the book that the word provenance enters Swedish uh, by the end of the 19th century, very much due to a lot of foreign scholars coming to Sweden, searching for spoils of war uh, that arrived in Sweden during the 17th century. And that's, this absolutely fascinated me. So, so this product that I'm working on now, it sort of deals with provenance as a European concept that is sort of born in the 19th century because it comes into the Germanic languages, English, German, Swedish, for instance, in this period it comes from French, uh, so uh, and it's of course Latin from the beginning. Uh, however, it didn't exist in the Germanic languages before the 19th century. So I'm interested in the concept and how this sort of is attached to provenance being an organizing principle of archives, uh, but also research practice that emerged in 19th century Europe. And I am then thinking about uh, these actors that, for instance, came to Sweden, researching certain provenances. Uh, and uh, I have recently actually published an article <laughs> about this called Provenance Research. Uh, and uh, the undertitle is Book History, Historiography, and the Rise of an Epistemic Category in 19th Century Europe. Uh, so the scope is wide, <laughs> but the case I, I, I actually discuss is quite, uh, it's, it's uh, uh, um, Habsburg, Austria, uh, the little region of Moravia in connection to, to material in Sweden and Rome. Uh, so it's connected to the 17th century looting enterprise that the Swedish uh, regions uh, occupied themselves with. So this is one thing that I'm working on at the moment. I'm also trying to develop a new project that has to do with ignorance in archives and libraries. Um, because there are so many things that you realize that it, these archivists and librarians are not aware of. <laughs> And there are also a lot of, I mean, I've noticed among these uh, visiting scholars or uh, these foreign researchers that comes to Sweden, they 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 often have these fantasies of, of all the richness that they will find. And this, I mean, these fantasies are something that really nurtures their scholarly creativity. So this is something that I would, I'm trying to sort of develop a project around. Um, and I mean, Peter Burke recently wrote a book about ignorance of global history. So <laughs> there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in this field at the moment. And I think it's particularly interesting to, to explore ignorance in the settings of knowledge collections, right? Because we think of it as the opposite of knowledge. But uh, the argument from Peter Burke and others uh, are that uh, ignorance and, and knowledge sort of work together in order to creating these epistemic hierarchies of archives and libraries, for instance. So, yeah, that is something that I'm thinking about at the moment. <laughs> that sounds really, really interesting. Um, looking forward to seeing what comes from that. Yeah, uh, maybe, maybe in seven years there will be another book. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. 
Once again, my guest today is Emma Hagstrom-Mullen, author of Spoils of Knowledge, 17th Century Plunder in Swedish Archives and Libraries. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you are listening to the Library Science Channel of New Books Network. <laughs> 